You're listening to Talk Daredevil, the official podcast of the Save Daredevil campaign. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Talk Daredevil. I'm Lauren, one of the team members on Save Daredevil. And I'm really excited about this episode because today we are talking about the law of Daredevil. And I am joined with a fellow team member. Hi, I'm Christine. And a very special guest, my husband, who happens to be an attorney. So I will let you introduce yourself. Hey, everyone. I'm Scott. I'm Lauren's husband. And I don't know if I'm a very special guest, but I'm really thrilled to be with you. (laughs) Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, I'd be glad to. So I am a practicing attorney. I'm in my fifth year of practice, and I work as a labor and employment defense attorney. So I represent exclusively management clients, uh, usually private companies, or a lot of my work is focused on the public sector. So I work with a lot of cities and counties and townships uh, and other types of public entities. So most lawyers are either transactional or they're a litigator. So transactional lawyers don't ever really go to the courtroom. They work on legal transactions, contracts, things like that. Litigators are, you know, what Matt Murdock does, spending time in the courtroom. Uh, Although even that is not 100% of a litigator's time. My practice is split about halfway down the middle. I'm about half transactional and about half uh, litigation. And I'm exclusively a civil litigator. So unlike... Mr. Murdoch, I do not do any criminal law, uh, no criminal defense, no prosecution. One time in my uh, career so far, I did help write a motion to dismiss a criminal case because it happened to be against one of our clients. But yeah, by and large, I'm exclusively on the civil side of things. Sounds more like Foggy Nelson. I think there's been some suggestion that he does more of the civil work. (laughs) The overwhelming majority of civil cases settle before there's ever a trial. So it's rare for civil litigators to actually make it into the courtroom, which is a little disappointment because it is fun to suit up and walk through the courthouse doors with your briefcase. So being a lawyer and the court system, we see that a lot in TV and in the comics. I feel like a lot of people have very strong opinions about uh, the practice of law. Some think it's great. Some don't like it. Christine, how do you feel like Matt being an attorney, like, does that make him more or less of a hero? Is it morally neutral to you? Um, I mean, I've always enjoyed that part of it. And I guess I would see it as morally neutral to maybe slightly positive. I know that there's a lot of defense attorneys. I mean, there's criticism like, oh, you defend the guilty party and so on, although they're, of course, not always guilty. And then, of course, Matt always has a protection of being able to tell whether people are innocent or not, although even that is kind of there's some complexity to that, too. But I do feel that even though you are sort of defending someone who's guilty, that type of institution is incredibly important in any, you know, civilized society. Well, and we've all heard the joke, I'm sure. Uh, What do you call a busload (laughs) of lawyers going off a cliff? It's a good start. Uh, And it's funny, lawyers get a bad rap. And yet America in particular, with the TV shows that are generated here, and consumed worldwide, there's there's an obsession with lawyers. We love to watch the legal system. We find it fascinating this sort of adversarial proceeding that people are essentially beating themselves, beating each other up in a courtroom, uh, but you know, using their words, using arguments, um, you know, putting people on the stand and seeing how they crack under pressure. We love to see that. That's why there's a proliferation of legal dramas, and you know, it's really interesting with Matt Murdock because. For me as a lawyer and as as a fan of superheroes, I'm drawn in particular to Matt because I find the law element fascinating and it's a part of Matt that I can identify with. And so I I want to say that Matt is more of a hero because he, you know, not only is he defending the streets of Hell's Kitchen and and New York City at night uh, in costume and using his, his considerable talents in that way, But then by daytime, he's working in a profession that he can use his other considerable talents to also advance the cause of justice in a different way. And I really like in the Charles Soule run at the end of the Supreme arc after he's had his big victory and he's kind of I think it's with Foggy. He's debriefing and talking through this and 
he says, as as Daredevil, I get to save the world. But as Matt Murdock, I have the chance to fix it. And so, you know, I think that presents really well that Matt has this capacity through his professional life to do what Daredevil can't do. But then, of course, as Daredevil, he's able to to exceed the limits that the ethical rules <laughs> set for him on what he should not be doing as an attorney and accomplish some things that can be very frustrating as a lawyer. We, we do have rules that we have to follow. There are cases where I know someone's lying, for example, but the only way I could prove it is through the introduction of hearsay evidence, and I can't bring hearsay evidence into a proceeding. And so it puts you in this conundrum where you know you may get a bad result, but you have rules that you're bound by. You can't introduce certain types of evidence. You can't coerce a witness. But maybe Daredevil can get that evidence in <laughs> yeah. the night. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I've i been a part of, at least adjacently, like of the legal world for what. 10, 11 years now through you. I love reading um, about the law in Daredevil. And even though I don't know much, I you mentioned Soul, at least with like the legal aspect, I could tell that he was an attorney, just the way he talked about law and, you know, some of the, like the words and the terms he used. Um, but anyway, I feel like he's more of a hero to me. And maybe because I just have an appreciation for law and I've your love of law, like I've come to love, you know, the legal profession. I, yeah. I really appreciate also that Matt's a very sort of a principled rule governed kind of person that I remember, I should just come to think of it now. There was this story, I think from a, one of the runs in the nineties, I think it was by Carl Kiesel. I could double check and put it in the show notes, but there's a case where he's defending uh, the villain, uh, Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde is a villain, but Matt, for whatever reason, I can't remember the details, uh, happens to know that he is innocent of the particular crime he's being accused of at the time. So decides to defend him anyway, which I think is, I mean, especially I, I feel sometimes these days it's, you know, so important to a lot of people to like point out like good people and bad people. But I think we also need to kind of look at, you know, good, valid principles that are always true and sort of look at the foundations of the, of the justice system. And just I mean, I, I, I really like that about math that he's like, yes, you know, I may not like this guy, but the principle matters, you know, like that, you know, I don't want to put this guy away on something he didn't do just because he's a bad guy. If he's a bad guy, I'm going to put him away on, on something bad that he did do. So I kind of like that, that aspect of it too. Well, and that's one facet of my practice that I found because uh, in, in particular, I'm not a solo practitioner. I work at a law firm with approximately 30 other attorneys and we are solely focused in labor and employment law. Although there's a there's a, a group of our attorneys, it's, I think four or five of them, who do high-end family law divorces and things like that, uh, which I have no interest in. I took family <laughs> law uh, at, at New York Law School, and while it gave me some fascinating insights, it confirmed for me that I did not want to step in the middle of divorcing couples for the rest of my career. <laughs> but you know, I don't get to necessarily be choosy about my clients uh, because of where I am at my stage in the career. I'm I'm in my fifth year. I'm still what you would consider an associate attorney. Um, you know, most law firms have some sort of track from associate level to partnership where you take on an equity interest in your firm. And instead of really drawing a salary, you become a sharer in the profits. So that's the natural track for attorneys over about a seven to 10 year period in their career. Um, I'm in more of a staff attorney role where I'm not really doing a lot of the business development uh, and, and working towards those things. So you know, I take my clients as I find them. And often I'll encounter a situation. Again, I'm solely on the defense side. So I'm usually dealing with lawsuits where an employee has been terminated. They feel wronged by that. They're asserting some claims, whether it's discrimination or harassment or retaliation. And I'm called on to defend their employer's decision. And oftentimes I'll dig into the facts. And it's not as though my client has done everything 100% correctly. Maybe they didn't do everything perfectly. Maybe someone complained and they just kind of ignored it. Uh, you know, maybe maybe they allowed behaviors to go on that they shouldn't have. But it doesn't mean they broke the law. And so, you know, I'm in, I encounter those situations where it's like by representing you, I'm not affirming that everything you did was completely above board, totally ethical, totally right. But you don't deserve no matter what small mistakes you made, you don't deserve to be forced to go into the courtroom to fend for yourself. You know, our system of justice 
is built around people being able to go into the courtroom with sophisticated representation and have their rights determined. And somebody has to represent companies who maybe didn't do everything right, but they didn't discriminate against someone on the basis of their their race or their sex or whatever other protected class. Maybe they just didn't document the reasons for their discipline well. Okay, well, that doesn't mean you should be forced to pay out a massive judgment. It doesn't mean that you had some sort of illegal animus towards the person. Maybe it just means you need to clean up your HR practices. It's funny for me, especially in watching Daredevil the show, because I think I'm trying to recall back the like the pilot episode when they're in the interrogation room with Karen and she's asking them how long they've practiced and they look down at their watches and it's I forget what they say. It's been like eight hours or something. But but that feeling of just being kind of thrown into the deep end of the pool, that was that was my experience, too, as an attorney, which is in part a credit to the firm that I work for. A lot of the big law law firms, you go in and you're one cog in the system. I'm trying to remember, is it, is it Landman and Zach, the, mm-hmm. the firm where uh, Matt and Foggy interned? Um, you know, if, if they'd gone into that role, they would have spent their first one, two, three years of practice stuck in a closet, essentially, reviewing documents. I mean, it may have been a nicer office than the, the file closet they were shown in in the show, but <laughs> they would have been doing e-discovery. They would have been looking over documents, flagging, highlighting things, not having a, a ton of client interaction. Uh, that wasn't the case for me because of some of the choices I made, just like Matt and Foggy made choices that they wanted to go out on their own. You know, I chose to go to a boutique firm where I would have direct client contact. Now, what that meant is my first week on the job, I was hauled out to go meet with a client uh, about a labor dispute. And I'm sitting face to face with a client hearing something explained to me. And they said, well, Scott, what do you think? And here I am. It's maybe day three for me. And I'm called on to give a legal opinion on something. And you know, I'm trying not to turn red and show my flop sweat or something like, you know, is this really <laughs> you happening? Like foggy. <laughs> you, you want my opinion here? You know, feel, yeah, feeling a lot like uh, foggy as he faces going into to a trial or something. But, you know, you you just sort of you remember your training and you dive right into it. And for me, it was helpful because I had some some life experience prior to that. I'd worked for seven years in HR so, you know, I had something to draw on. And uh, I think for Matt in particular, because of the type of law he went into practice, focusing early on in criminal defense, he has, through the experience he had growing up with his dad and the tragedy that he experienced with his dad, and then just growing up in Hell's Kitchen, I think he's got a little bit of street smarts he brings to the profession that would help him on day one to be a little bit fluent in cutting through people's BS, discerning the truth, even if he couldn't hear their heartbeats. You know, he's he's got a little bit of sort of a, a one up on maybe other first year attorneys because he's just a little bit more street smart and wise and has some uh, heightened senses to bank on, too. <laughs> so, Scott, being an attorney and watching the show, reading some of the comics, what is kind of your overall perception of just how they handle the legal profession and his job as an attorney? Yeah, well, I mean, Matt, as portrayed in in the show in particular, is, you know, kind of the wish fulfillment fantasy of attorneys because, A, he has a bank of heightened senses that he can rely on to hear heartbeats. What I would not give to be able to hear the heartbeat of a person in a deposition, (laughs) for example, and, you know, sighted attorneys and those of us without Matt's uh, abilities, you know, we look for things like shifting eyes and body posture, sitting back with crossed arms and things like that. There are, there are visual cues. I once saw an attorney pat her client on the leg as a signal during a deposition, which is a big no-no. And we called it out right on the record and everything. But um, Matt would have been able to detect that too. It just would have been interesting how he would have explained that he knew the cue because uh, he wouldn't have been able to see it as we did. But anyway, kind of circling back to your question, I got off on a tangent. So the way the show portrays Matt, he's, I would like to say, he's the wish fulfillment fantasy of lawyers because he has abilities that we would long for that would make our professional life so much easier. And he also has the ability to work outside the confines of the legal system to accomplish real justice without being bound by some of the limits of things that, you know, we attorneys do. We're limited in the types of evidence that we can present, the way we can ask it, the kinds of information that we can get out of parties that are adverse to us. We can only get evidence through the discovery process in a lawsuit. So we, you know, we send discovery requests to a party that we have sued or that is suing us. Or we can send subpoenas to third parties, but those subpoenas can be quashed, meaning they can be thrown out or or reduced or narrowed. Well, 
those limits don't apply when you have, you know, the ability to go and obtain that evidence from yourself and, and sadly to coerce it out of witnesses, which carries its own ethical issues. But I like the way that the show gives us good visuals of Matt's life as an attorney. There are a lot of scenes in the show where you see Matt doing the what I would say is the dull part but the real part of my profession, which is we spend a lot of time sitting around in front of a computer and a stack of books and reading things and researching and cross-referencing. And, you know, we, we find a case that we like, but we have to do what's what we, what we call shepherdizing it. We have to go and look at any other cases that cited it to confirm if it's still good law. And it's very tedious and time consuming. And that is a lot of what the profession of law looks like. So I love the show when we get moments like that, where they're hunkered down, they've got some Chinese takeout, and they're working through the books and everything. I, I think that that is more of the time than what we get, you know, depicted in the show. That's a lot more of what it is. Um, now, I will say I'm a civil litigator, and so most of my life isn't in court. I do have friends who work in the criminal defense world. I have a friend who's a public defender um, here in Ohio, and there is a lot more time in the courtroom there. And so to the extent that you see that in the comics or in the show where Matt does end up in the courtroom quite a bit for this arraignment hearing or that trial or jury selection or whatever, that is a little more realistic of criminal law practice because where most civil cases settle, on the criminal side, you have a constitutional right to a trial by jury. And while a lot of criminal defendants take plea deals rather than risk a trial, they have a constitutional right to be tried before a jury. And so many of them exercise that right. So you do see the criminal cases take precedence on judges' dockets, and a lot more time is spent in the courtroom for a criminal lawyer. So I think in that sense, the show is very real, because we do see Matt doing the legal work, the the boring stuff, I guess you might say. We do see him also engaging in the courtroom the way that a criminal lawyer would need to do. But proportionally, we're not seeing him do as much of that as he would have to do to be maintaining this practice. And, and maybe that's part of the problem, too, with Matt, because we don't see him doing that a lot. And part of the, the tensions he gets into with Foggy and, and things is that he isn't doing enough of that because mm -hmm. his day life and his night life are in tension. So I think the show handled that really well in particular, too. You, As a lawyer, you cannot skirt by, you cannot sort of get around doing that legwork. Uh, it's a profession where you can't just ride into court on how articulate you are and how skilled you are and do things on the fly because you need to be able to argue the law. And to do that, you have to know the law that applies to your situation. And so uh, I do think the show handled that well, too, that um, Matt's a very capable lawyer, but he is not a very capable person at balancing these two halves of his life. Yeah, especially on the show. I think we've talked about this. It's kind of a, the first three seasons are kind of an origin story. He's still trying to figure out the balance of that. And a lot of times he's doing it very poorly. But in the comics, especially the later ones, you really see him balancing it more. Like he's been doing this a while. Like he kind of knows what he's doing. But you have mentioned, Scott, that the ethics are a huge part of the practice of law. There's a code of ethics for every state. Lawyers have to abide by them. So how, how well does Matt do as an attorney and as Daredevil with the code of ethics here? <laughs> well, I said that Matt Murdock and, and his Daredevil alter ego are a wish fulfillment fantasy of attorneys. If it were ethical for an attorney to be a vigilante in the night, then he'd be doing fine, I suppose. But it is not ethical to 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 do this. And so, you know, we, we find Matt, I, I, I know from the comics, Matt loses his law license. He's disbarred in the state of New York. And the main sort of catalyst for that is, is his vigilanteism and his repeated efforts to lie about and cover up that vigilanteism, you know, lying to opposing counsel, lying to his clients, lying to the tribunal, to the court system. Uh, that's, you know, what ultimately culminates in him losing his law license. And I think were the Daredevil show to continue to play out, Matt would have to confront this inevitable ethical tension between his two lives because he's doing things uh, well, I, 
So on both sides of the house. So in his life as a lawyer, his long nights out on the streets of the city are compromising his representation of his clients. He's not showing up for court, uh, you know, during the Punisher trial in particular in the show. Um, as an attorney under the New York State rules of ethics, he has a duty of competence. He has to be thorough and prepared in representing his client. And Matt's not meeting that. Uh, there's a New York ethics rule 1.3 that says you can't neglect legal matters that are entrusted to you. And we see that in the show. Matt's uh, Matt's not balancing this well. He, as a lawyer, has an ethical duty to be prioritizing the defense of his clients, and he's not doing that. And I think the other things he, he really runs into uh, on the legal practice side then are there are rules about fairness to the other side, obstructing the other side's access to evidence. So if you have situations where Matt is in his, in his alter ego at night, beating up on people in the streets who have any connection to a trial whatsoever. Um, you know, you are, you're running afoul potentially of some ethics rules here, which require you to act with fairness to opposing party and their counsel. You can't use means of obtaining evidence that would violate the rights of a third party. You know, you have a right to be free from assault and battery. And so again, anytime that Daredevil is intersecting with individuals that Matt's interacting with in his legal practice, he's, getting close to and jumping over the edge of major legal ethical problems. Uh, if he could compartmentalize his life and the criminals that he beats up in the streets were never the ones that he was either defending or even connected to the ones he's defending, I suppose you could maintain a wall between that. But he still can't get past, uh, I think, what the biggest ethical issue is for him, which is it'd be New York's Rule 8.4. He makes it misconduct for a lawyer to commit a criminal act it reflects adversely on that lawyer's honesty, truthfulness, or fitness. It's also unethical under that rule to engage in dishonesty, fraud, deceit, misrepresentation, <laughs> or any conduct prejudicial to the administration of justice. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. That is so, so interesting because all of the different things you mentioned, because I think that the thing that gets talked about the most uh, is, of course, the problem of getting like directly involved in like the case you're you're in the middle of and like, you know, offer, like affecting that and pulling strings and everything and threatening. Uh, yeah, everyone involved. I, I would always I think that's the thing that gets the most attention. But it's so interesting to hear you mention all of these other things that's like, OK, so, yeah, that's going <laughs> to be a problem. <laughs> It would be a laundry list of things. So as an attorney, in order to be admitted to the bar, you have to take a course in legal ethics. There are defined rules of legal ethics you have to learn, and then you have to take a legal ethics exam separate from the bar exam and be certified that you understand the ethics rules. And then throughout your life as an attorney, you have continuing education. And within each year, I, I, I don't know about New York for sure, but certainly for me in Ohio, I have to do legal education every year. And a certain portion of that has to be a refresher on the rules of ethics. So they're very important. We're a self-policing profession. So it is important for Matt to, to know these ethics rules. He would know them left and right. And especially working in the world with you know criminal defendants, there are things that are particular to that. And at times he shows a keen knowledge of that. So there's, there's the scene in um, season one where he's talking to Wilson Fisk at the art gallery and he's the first to to engage with them like this is awkward we shouldn't be speaking because we're on opposite sides of a lawsuit and that is it's rule 4.2 in New York and I think in most states because they're based on a model set of rules you you can't as an attorney have communications with a person who you know to be represented by counsel who's adverse to you so and that creates the question so Matt knows that in his Matt persona that he can't do that and is willing to acknowledge that but Matt, when he puts on the Daredevil mask, seems to have no reservations about Daredevil having communications with persons who are represented by counsel. And by communications, I do mean fisticuffs as well. <laughs> so, you know, how do you draw that line? Are you bound by the ethics rules only when your mask is off? I would say no. You know, Matt is a lawyer 100% of the time, even if Daredevil doesn't come into the courtroom in his Daredevil costume. Although that seems to happen, too. <laughs> this is so typical of Matt, though, and I think it goes back to like even his his origin story. And when he first puts on the, the mask, doesn't even address how it affects his profession. For him, it's more like about the you know keeping this promise to his dad that I you know I promise I wouldn't do all of these things. I wouldn't use my fists. I wouldn't you know so on. And 
in creating the separate persona, it's almost as if he believes in himself that I become this separate person <laughs> when I do this. So I think in, in order for him to even just sort of, you know, reconcile all of this to himself, he has to have a very, I mean, obviously not like a truly split personality, but I think that's the only way he can sort of logically handle any of this is to just like, have this dividing line between his the two parts of his life. But it's interesting because even with the promise to his dad, it's the same thing. Like he feels like he's not breaking the promise when he's in the mask. Very interesting. Was there any other ethical issues that you saw or wanted to opine on? I mean, yes. So there, there are a litany of ethical rules. And so there's a multitude of ways that I think Matt uh, skirts the line on those. And I, I will say Matt's ethical quandaries that he faces are not something that's unique to him because he's daredevil. Uh, every lawyer faces ethical challenges. And part of the reason for that is because in this self-policing profession of law, we expect extremely high standards. There's a public perception that lawyers are skeezy, money-grabbing, unethical, greedy people. Lauren, you and I have often joked that, was it lawyer is, uh, is Latin for liar? Yeah. Uh, but in reality, <laughs> when you become a lawyer, you swear an oath to uphold the law and to abide by these ethical standards. And those standards are, you know, one of the big ones is the duty of candor. It's rule 3.3 in New York. And, uh, you know, every state has a similar rule. You can't make any statements of fact or law to the court that are false. And if you have made one, you have a duty to correct it. And there are related rules that prohibit you from making false statements to the other side. So despite this public perception that lawyers are liars, uh, or that if you can know that a lawyer is lying because his mouth is moving, the mm -hmm. reality is that we as lawyers work way too hard to get our law degree. And it means way too much to us to be a part of this system to jeopardize it by lying, no matter what it advances, you know, for our clients. And so every, every week as a lawyer, I get emails from the Ohio State Supreme Court about attorneys who are being disbarred for ethical lapses. And there was a big, big deal case recently in Ohio where it was actually a judge and his wife were driving home. I think they one or more or both of them were inebriated and they struck a pedestrian and it, they did a hit and run. They drove off. And when it was identified that it was this judge, uh, he was raked over the coals in the criminal system and uh, was convicted of, for his crime. And he will now no longer be able to serve as a judge. And my guess is that there will probably be disciplinary proceedings to disbar him eventually as well, because lawyers really do, in order for there to be integrity in, in the court system, lawyers do have to hold up a higher standard. So I think that the challenges that Matt faces are amplified because he's DD. But Matt, as a lawyer operating in the sphere he is in New York City, is inevitably going to face ethical challenges. I will say the one ethical challenge he he did not seem to face in the show, although certainly if it you know continues on, we may face this because Matt, at least in the comic books, seems to do very well with the ladies. And one of the major ethical rules that I thought was overemphasized when I was in law school was how important it is not to have sexual relationships with your clients. As in, like, we probably spent an entire <laughs> class talking about that. And I'm sitting there scratching my head saying, is this, is this really that significant of a problem? You know, why are there so many questions on the exam about when you're allowed to have an intimate relationship with your clients? Uh, so we did not necessarily encounter Matt violating those ethical standards in seasons one through three, but uh, perhaps he would have some some ethical quandaries in season four. So you mentioned earlier the legal profession kind of being stuck in the Stone Age. I know we've discussed before it's very paper heavy. Do you want to talk about the realities of being a blind lawyer? Yeah, so hats off to Matt, because even with his heightened senses, I I am amazed by his ability to not only practice law, but to excel in it. And uh, I have known at least one blind attorney, and it is it is very possible. Uh, blind individuals are extremely capable, and there's nothing to preclude them from this profession. But as someone who's in the profession, it's not intentional, but we don't make it easy. Uh, it is a very sight-oriented profession. And it, let me preface this discussion too by saying before I became an attorney, I, I was working in HR and I had the privilege of working for four years at the Cincinnati Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. So I was doing human resources there, had the chance to interview and recruit on any number of 
um, you know, individuals with profound vision loss and who were um, legally blind and totally blind. And so, you know, I have, again, a special love for Daredevil. And maybe that's why I'm drawn to Daredevil, because inadvertently I've been trying to mirror my life after him. I, <laughs> I, I'm not blind, but I, I worked for four years with the blind. I didn't attend Columbia Law School, but I worked at Columbia University for a couple of years. I did go to law school in Tribeca, uh, you know, which is pretty close to Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> and, and, and I'm a defense lawyer, although not a criminal defense lawyer. So I'm I'm like the poor man's Matt Murdock, I guess. But um, <laughs> so the legal profession has accepted technology. There have been changes to the ethics rules that require among the duties of lawyers, you have to be competent with technology now, which is kind of a new thing in our profession. And the reason that ethical rule came in is because most of the profession is sort of stuck in the Stone Age. Time was that cases were decided by judges. Those cases were printed up in big volumes that were bound together and they were all tagged with keywords. And then you'd have these magnificent mahogany shelves in law libraries. As far as the eye could see, there's a, there's a, a panel uh, in a, in one of the Daredevil comics. I'm trying to remember, I think it's in part of the trial of the century where uh, Matt and Foggy are trying to do their case strategy and they're sitting next to this magnificent wall of books. And I'm thinking, my goodness, how useless that is for Matt, all of these legal texts. But that's the way the profession has historically been oriented. And in the last 20 years or so, there's been a huge shift towards uh, technology, which would be very timely for the Matt of today. Because now when I'm doing legal research, I no longer have to consult books. I have a few books, but by and large, I can do those things electronically. But even those programs are very site oriented. So for example, if I'm looking up case law, I put in my search parameters and I get this nice search list, but it may be several hundred cases. Matt would have to use his access technology to go through that entire list of cases and have it read to him. And you know, in the show, we see him using a refreshable braille display. We see him using an earpiece, which I presume is attached to um, like a screen reader program like JAWS. <clears throat> and those can read at more than one times normal humans, you know, hear um, speech. So, you know, he may be listening two to four times as fast as a normal human speech, but it's still going to take him a while to get through that. Whereas as a sighted lawyer, I have the ability to look through that list and some of the search tools actually color code your search terms. So I can just look for colors. I can scan the list in a few seconds, see where the colors are close enough together. And that's probably the case that I want. Matt can't do that. And even with his considerable talents and, and his heightened senses, he's still limited by the access technology that he's using to interface with those resources. So it would certainly be challenging. And just the law school process alone, you know, the legal profession has moved towards the electronic world. We file documents in court electronically now. We get emails from the judges instead of, you know, paper letters in the mail. So that shift would be really great for Matt. But law school is still very oriented around you sitting in a classroom with a physical textbook in front of you being called on in what we call the Socratic method of teaching, uh, where the, the professor calls you out, assigns you this case, and he asks you all the questions about that case and drills down your knowledge and extracts from you the holding of the case. And Matt would have necessarily had all of these books. And so he would have through law school had to be spending, you know, I, I think when I was in law school, I was spending about two hours of study time to every one hour in class. And I think for Matt, it probably would have taken him twice that amount of time, uh, just because he would have either had to use um, electronic case books with his refreshable Braille display, or have his books converted into Braille, which takes a lot more paper and a lot more time to read. So it's a considerable reflection on Matt's dedication, his love for law, that he would put in more time and effort than anyone else uh, cited just to get through law school and then to grapple with a, a profession that is really not conducive to a non-cited person. Yeah, this is also a good reminder of one of the things I like to talk about is, I mean, there's a lot of focus on like sort of Matt pretending not to have, like, I mean, he's pretending to be an ordinary blind person. Uh, who doesn't have acting senses, but I, I kind of always try to make the case of like how impossible it would be for him to pretend to, like if you do the opposite, to pretend to be cited, especially in law school. It's just like, there, there's just no way he could do that, which um, kind of absolves him of a, another one of the ethical conundrums that we, we like to connect to this character. 
Indeed. Yeah. And I mean, we like to also talk about his ability to run his fingers over printed text. And that just would not be efficient. You know, you've talked about this, Christine, that he could do it, but it's not going to be as fast as Braille or listening electronically. No, yeah, I mean, because that's, that's the difference between the show and the comic. And I think even in the comics, they're kind of like moving away from this being sort of like the solution to all of his problems. Because early on, there are even some scenes in like early, you know, Daredevil comics where he's like actually going into like a room of books and just like scanning all the books. And even even making a point of like, oh, it's this is such a fast method of reading. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> uh, e- even if it were. And I even I did the math on this one time. I don't remember the math on it, but I mean, there, there is math on it. You could compare the size of the average printed like Times New Roman letter uh, and compare it to a braille cell in size and also compare it to like what the old time printing methods it would have. I mean, it would be kind of raised, you know, and slightly off the page because of the printing method and so on. And I mean, there's, there's a case to be made for that being like, I mean, less impossible than some of the other things he's doing. But even, I mean, I'm glad they kind of didn't really use that for the show. And even if it's like possible, I mean, it would be super, super slow. I've actually compared it to also because of the swirliness of like, you know, how a, how a printed letter or even like a handwritten letter is it's got swirls and that our sense of touch is not well adapted to deter, to sensing that kind of pattern. Uh, it is better adapted, especially the, the, the um, touch receptors that respond to vibration because those were the, are the same ones you would read real with. But basically, anytime you feel a texture, it's actually the the vibration sensitive um, touch receptors that kind of that kind of do that. Uh, those respond much better to to dots, to like a dot pattern, than they would to any kind of mm-hmm. swirly pattern. So there are so many reasons why that doesn't like. It, it would be more like you know, uh, like maybe a deaf person, you know, um, speech reading or something, uh, which would be you know suboptimal, but possibly maybe doable. But it's not, you know, it's not a I mean, it's made for, for sight, you know, um, it's adapted for that type of receptive medium. So, yeah, or modality rather. Sorry. Well, and this is something that's so interesting about Matt, because the way he's portrayed in the show, he's kind of, um, with respect to law, it's not that he's not taking this seriously, but he's often slacking off. He's not putting in the work he needs to. But in order for Matt to have achieved this profession and and been sworn in as a lawyer, he would have had to work harder than cited law students. And so it's sort of a weird tension, like, in order for you to get where you are, you would have had to work so much harder. But now as a lawyer, you're kind of slacking off because Daredevil is taking too much away from you. And I I do want to say that um, even without his heightened senses, though, it is entirely possible uh, for blind individuals to be fully capable practicing attorneys. And in fact, one of the um, one of my professors in my undergrad uh, courses when I was attending Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, I, I took a human resource law course. And it's one of the things that got me interested in HR. And then later, you know, kind of inspired me to go to law school. And my professor, uh, Dr. Ann Went, was totally blind. And it was my oh, first wow. interaction with a blind person and with a blind person in the legal profession. She was a, a, a full professor. She was teaching this law course and she would prepare for her lessons. She would record, she'd dictate notes to herself. And then during her lesson, she had an earpiece in and she would pause for about 30 seconds, listen to her notes. And then she would lecture for about five minutes and then she'd pause and listen for about 30 seconds. And it was fascinating for me, especially when we were talking about the law of disability to hear a fully blind, but fully practicing and and brilliant lawyer uh, teaching me about the Americans with Disabilities Act. And Dr. Went actually uh, recommended me for an externship with the Ohio Civil Rights Commission, uh, which again, helped pique my legal interests. So uh, yet yet another nexus of my life to Matt Murdock's uh, (laughs) journey. I I probably would not be a lawyer, but for a blind lawyer who, uh, you know, inspired me and got me interested in the profession. Fascinating. So let's move on and talk about the biggest trial in the show, which is the Punisher trial. It spans, I think, three episodes, and we are in the courtroom a lot. We are um, in a lot of preparation. So we would love to hear a little bit more about, you know, how you felt about this whole arc. Anything good, anything bad, anything questionable? 
Yeah, so the Punisher trial is a fantastic, um, you know, sort of a pinnacle within season two. And, and it's it's one of the chances in the show that we really get to see um, Matt and Foggy doing the the day to day of what it would mean to be taking on this massive case. And so, you know, it's it's fascinating. It's as fascinating as it is frustrating because we're seeing this great legal stuff, which is thrilling me as a viewer. Uh, but we're also seeing Matt just completely dropping the ball and foggy rising to the challenge of it, um, which, again, can be a real thing that that happens. In most cases, lawyers um, have at least two lawyers assigned to every matter. You have a first chair and a second chair attorney, and often it's the the partner level attorneys in the first chair and then uh, an associate level attorney is the second chair and you work together. But if something goes wrong and only one of you is available, it's not the end of the day. So I love the Punisher trial um, because of the way it moves each of the characters along. The There's a Punisher trial in the comics and it really is a character development opportunity with with Frank. You get some insight into how Machiavellian he is, and he's not just <laughs> not just muscle and guns, but he's also pretty smart and strategic. Uh, but it doesn't really move anybody else's plotline along. Whereas in the Punisher trial, we see this developing, uh, you know, Frank's character as well as Foggy. We see Foggy rising to the challenge and sort of overcoming some self-esteem or imposter syndrome kind of issues to to really step it up to the plate. And then you see Matt just totally spiraling in his ability to manage his two competing lives and the impact it has on his relationship with Karen. So I, I liked that from a character development aspect. From the legal side of things, you know, I'm scratching my head this whole time. How on earth are we getting to a criminal trial this fast? And I think even lay viewers are probably seeing this and thinking, is this realistic? This guy was just arrested. He's still recovering from his wounds. And they're basically hauling him from the hospital straight into the courtroom. It, you know, the trial's starting the next week after. You know, what I will say, again, I'm a civil litigator. I don't do a lot of work on the criminal side. In my world, from the time of filing a complaint to when you would go to a trial would be 12 to 18 months, assuming everything went right. So this notion that you're going to be in trial within a week uh, is is crazy on my side. The criminal side of the house is a little different because you have a constitutional right to a speedy trial. And so uh, criminal cases take precedence on the docket. And so you do see shorter timelines, but we're still talking weeks to months. I do not see any scenario where Frank Castle goes on trial the next week after uh, his arrest. And, and that would be prejudicial to both sides. And the show sort of tries to explain this away. It's, it's like the showrunners in consulting with, I assume, consulting with some people in the legal profession. They kind of knew this was fantastical. And so they drop a few hints to say, well, we're, we're moving so quick because Frank waived all discovery and he waived this and, and that. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, e even so, I'm not sure that the prosecution would even be comfortable going to trial that fast because when the stakes are that high, there's a lot of documents to review. There are depositions of witnesses to be taken. And there are things like lining up experts. So, you know, they have an expert to testify at Frank Castle's trial about the brain damage he experienced and the sort of constant fight or flight syndrome he'd be in. Well, it, it it's impossible within a week's time frame that they would have identified that expert, had him evaluate Frank, write a written report, be deposed by the prosecution, uh, and then put put him on trial, uh, or I, I should say put him on the, the evidence stand uh, to testify at the trial. So the timeline of the Frank Castle trial could only happen on TV. I did very much appreciate, though, that we got to see some of the um, some glimpses into the work of prepping for trial. They're around the table. They're looking through books. They're building a case strategy. That's very realistic. And we got to see some glimpses of the voir dire process uh, of vetting jurors and asking them these questions to determine if they're going to be a good objective juror. So that was exciting for me as an attorney, because that's that's a very realistic part of of the trial process. And there's a whole you know, world of strategy that goes into choosing the right jurors, especially for a matter like that, which would have so much publicity. What we didn't get to see is what would have inevitably occurred before the trial, which is a significant amount of motion practice and submission of documents to the court. So a trial is like theater. It's very scripted. And the witnesses that are going to be called are all submitted to the court in advance. 
The evidence that's going to be used in the trial is all submitted to the court in advance. It's marked. It's documented. Both sides know the evidence the other side's going to use. And there's a process before trial for pretrial motions. Uh, and, and so you see things in the Punisher trial, for example, like when the defense expert is on the stand and you see the prosecution objecting to the expert testifying about an ultimate opinion in the case. Well, this isn't necessarily realistic because that expert's ability to testify would have been decided before the trial. There would have been a motion in limine from the prosecution seeking to exclude this person as an expert. And you would have had Foggy and Matt filing briefs to defend the expert's qualifications and a decision from the judge um, as to whether he, he meets what's called the, the Dobert standard, uh, which is the sort of the Supreme Court test that's been developed and codified in our rules of evidence for who can testify as an expert or not. So that exchange that happens with the prosecution, you know, in front of the jury, no less, again, is, is the only only the kind of thing that happens on TV. And it makes for sensational TV. The reality is a lot of these battles are fought between the parties before the judge and the jury never sees any of this. Um, so I, I liked that they had elements in the Punisher trial that showed you like, oh, the legal profession is happening and there's motions being made and there's, you know, this and that. Uh, but the timeline is definitely way off. Some of the things that happen in the courtroom are way off. That's probably the biggest thing many lay people have an issue with, too, in the Punisher trial is why in God's name is this packed courtroom full of people with signs who are not being restrained from shouting as Frank Castle is sitting there in his prison jumpsuit and in shackles. And I'm seeing this and I'm just kind of rubbing my temples as I'm watching it going, <laughs> you know, the show again, explained a lot of what's happening being Frank, just waving his rights. A criminal defendant would never be obligated to appear in front of the jury in his prison jumpsuit and in shackles. That's just far too prejudicial. But if Frank didn't care then the question is, why didn't Matt and Foggy advise him, you can't let them see you in this? So when, when he finally shows up in a suit for his own testimony, I was like, well, at least Frank got it together here. But Matt and Foggy should never have let you appear in a prison jumpsuit uh, <laughs> be, before a jury. And uh, this notion that people would be in the courtroom with signs, again, that's something that the judge would have shut down. Judges run a very tight ship. Uh, while trials are a public event, um, this particular trial, I think, you know, the public would have been there. There certainly wouldn't have been signs for that. And in fact, if the trial hadn't gone forward in one week's time, you would have seen motion practice from Foggy and Matt to consider things like changing the venue of the trial. How could the Punisher get a fair trial in New York City where his alleged crimes were committed uh, and where there was so much publicity? So you would have seen motions to change the venue because you can't get a fair jury pool there. You would have seen a motion to close the trial off to the public, whether it was granted or not, um, you know, if they were doing their duty of uh, of representing their client zealously, they would have needed to file these motions to protect Frank's interests. None of that makes for good TV. But I'm I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt that all of those motions happened and the judge just shut them down because the judge wanted it to go to trial. Well, you mentioned yeah, we also have to assume that it's all corrupt, right? I mean, yeah, yes, like, exactly. Like 80% of the police department <laughs> seems to be like corrupt. So maybe like all the, um, the legal professionals are too, all the, all the judges and the prosecutor's office. And yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, and my heart really went out to Foggy and Matt as a, as a fellow practicing lawyer, because I've had cases that I've taken on, on the civil side where I'm sitting back looking at the documents and the facts and going, I don't even know how we build a coherent defense strategy out of this. How do you defend these actions? I've, I've got nothing. Um, and, and, you know, they're scratching their heads debating, do we, do we assert PTSD? Which is, you know, they're taking the right tack on this, that the evidence that Frank had committed these crimes was incontrovertible. It was so strong. He's tied to them. There's, there's really no question. He's the punisher and he punished people. Um, and so... <laughs> For them to go for an affirmative defense was the right strategy to take. Um, but Frank is hamstringing them along the way. Uh, you know, he's not letting them assert PTSD. He doesn't seem to be 
really on board then with the doctor coming in and arguing this um, this sort of syndrome that he has either. And that can be really tough with with clients. I've had that situation on the civil side where you and your client have a profound dis- disagreement over the defense strategy, and it can co- it can actually reach a point where you have an ethical duty to withdraw from representation from your client if you have a fundamental disagreement over the direction of the case and you can't take it the way the client wants to. Um, you know, I think they they did about the best they could with the facts that they were given. And I I was really fascinated as a lawyer with their, you know, sort of flirting with this insanity defense or lack of responsibility because of this mental or, you know, physical brain defect that he he can't tell right from wrong. And Lauren and I were talking about this the other day. Um, you know, the in in criminal law, if you're gonna assert this insanity or lack of responsibility defense, you essentially admit the crime. But in every crime, there's an actus reus and a mens rea. The actus reus is the criminal act that you committed. And you have to admit that you did the actus reus and then deny that you had the mens rea, the, the mental state, to commit the crime. And that's that's essentially what they're going for is, yeah, Frank shot and killed these people. <laughs> he punished them. But <laughs> uh, but he he didn't appreciate the nature of the acts he was doing or couldn't appreciate the difference between right and wrong. It's an extremely difficult defense. And Foggy misspeaks at one point when they're talking about the insanity defense. And he says um, that the prosecution has the burden to show that he uh, wasn't insane. And that's not true. Uh, You know, this is an affirmative defense. The defense has to prove that either this is a person who can't appreciate the wrongness of their act or that they can't differentiate between right and wrong and I, I've used the example before. If you thought that you were chopping wood and in fact you were chopping up a person, but because of a mental defect, you can't process that that was a person. You legitimately believed you were chopping wood, then you you would not be guilty of murder because you are legally insane. Uh, or if you, because of a mental defect, can't differentiate what is right from what is wrong, that you view cutting up a carrot and cutting up a person. I'm sorry to be graphic, but if you view that as being the same then again, legally insane can't be culpable for the crime of murder, which requires an intent to kill or cause serious bodily harm to another person. So, you know, again, the Punisher trial was really exciting for me as a viewer and as a lawyer, because we're flirting with these legal concepts that are fascinating to watch. um, And then it just becomes this massive circus that spins completely out of control when Wilson Fisk decides to, to intervene. Yeah, so you kind of mentioned how Frank is definitely a volatile client, and you can suggest, you know, this is how you want to handle the trial, but at the end of the day, especially if they take the stand, it's like, you cannot control them. And I think that's interesting in in the trial. He uh, Frank takes the stand, and Matt, immediately realizing that he is not going to play ball, asks to uh, treat him as a hostile witness. You want to talk a little bit about that? (laughs) Yeah, so that was an exciting moment for me. And I was wondering, as I was watching the Punisher trial, how are they going to make a defense out of this? And in every criminal matter, you have a... So a criminal defendant has a constitutional right against self-incrimination. And so the way that right plays out is that if you're a criminal defendant, you can choose whether to take the stand or not. And the jury cannot be instructed... Uh, to draw any negative inference from you not taking the stand. And often the jury is instructed, you can't take a negative inference. You have to assume that he just exercised this right. It's his right not to take the stand, etc. And by and large, criminal defendants don't take the stand uh, because you're, if you do take the stand in your own defense, you are subject to cross-examination by the prosecution. So it can be a big risk. And we, we just saw this play out in the United States in the Derek Chauvin trial. Chauvin had the opportunity to take the stand in his defense. He chose not to. And there was a moment in the trial where he actually spoke to the jury and explained that he was knowingly and voluntarily choosing to exert his Fifth Amendment uh, privilege against self-incrimination. Um, so Frank Castle could have easily done that, uh, but they recommended to him to put him on the witness stand and he was willing to go along with it. There's a lot of factors that go into that recommendation and it's one of the most difficult ones that a criminal defense attorney would make. Um, In that trial, there was a lot to be gained from Frank going on the stand and telling his story and 
ultimately it is the client's decision. So you can't force your client to take the stand. You can only advise them. And that's true of every step in the litigation. The lawyer is a facilitator, a legal expert, but the client's always in the driver's seat. So if Frank had wanted to take the stand, the only sort of caveat that they couldn't prevent him from taking the stand, but if they knew he was going to perjure himself on the stand, they would have had a duty to inform the court and to withdraw from representation. So Frank does take the stand and it quickly spins out of control. And Lauren, you mentioned uh, Matt asks the court for permission to treat him as a hostile witness. And this is something that the rules allow for um, the, the evidentiary rules that and it's a situation that doesn't come up a lot, but it's entirely possible that you would call a witness who you expect to give favorable testimony and they become belligerent and hostile on the stand. And what happens is you ask for permission to treat them as a hostile witness, and that allows you, uh, even though you're on direct examination, to basically to cross-examine them. So direct examination is really limited. The attorney minimizes how much they talk. They ask who, what, when, where, how, why. They don't ask yes or no questions. They don't ask leading questions. You don't badger the witness. That's not true on cross-examination. You get to ask leading questions. You get to be a bit aggressive. and But you can't do that to your own witness unless they're hostile. So I was really excited because... Frank is clearly being hostile. Uh, Matt asks for permission and the court grants it to treat him as a hostile witness. And then Matt goes into what is kind of a great closing argument, but he doesn't actually ask Frank a question as a hostile witness. And so, you know, I'm like on the edge of my seat and then I just kind of fall back like that made for really great TV, but that made no sense to me as as a as a legal practitioner. You know, it, and it, it's a tricky skill. Cross-examination is one of the most difficult things that we do as attorneys, it, at least in my opinion. And so I was really excited to see Matt do that because it is a very challenging legal skill and I wanted to see him show his prowess. And we didn't really get to see that, but we got this excellent speech about the importance of superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, overall, I think the Punisher trial just, you know, it was definitely entertaining. So the Punisher trial wraps up. Then afterwards, we meet Reyes and everything that happens in her apartment. So after she is killed, we discuss, you know, we find out that there was this huge conspiracy. And is Tower the assistant DA? Is that what he is? What is he? I don't know what At his that term point. is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the assistant DA um, talks to uh, Nelson and Murdoch and Paige, and uh, he talks about having found out. He knew of the conspiracy and didn't say anything. Uh, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, so I'm not really sure how ADA Tower becomes DA Tower uh, when he's sitting on this major ethical thing that apparently he does not report up the chain. So... <laughs> I mentioned earlier, the legal profession, we hold each other to high standards. We are a self-policing profession, and there are specific ethical rules that require an attorney who has knowledge of an another attorney's misconduct to report that to the appropriate bar authorities. And we take that responsibility very seriously. And so unless another attorney comes to you in the context of attorney-client privilege, they retain you for an ethics opinion and then tell you I did this thing and you say that's ethical or that's not. Outside of that, if you become aware that another attorney has violated an ethical rule, you yourself have an ethical duty to report it. So DA Tower, ADA Tower, becomes aware. He suspects that Reyes is engaged in a cover-up, but he doesn't have hard proof. But his conversation with Foggy and Karen, he sort of admits that at some point, it becomes clear to him that there is a conspiracy. He he knows Reyes is actively covering up evidence connecting the gang shooting to Frank Castle and his family's uh, his family's deaths, and he knows this and he is not reporting it to the appropriate bar authorities. So that's a, an independent ethical violation. ADA Tower was risking his law license uh, if he didn't report that. The other thing that is a major ethical quandary created by that is that any cases that Reyes is involved in, and in particular in the Frank Castle case, you know, ADA Tower sort of absolves his own guilt about this by turning over the x-ray of Frank's head, uh, you know, which is <laughs> poignant because it's just the Punisher image, um, <laughs> which is cool. Uh, so that was a nice touch. But, you know, he sort of absolves his like ethical guilt by giving this over to Karen, well, well, that's not really enough. So when you're in the role of a prosecutor, you have special 
um, ethical responsibilities and constitutional responsibilities. It's what we call the Brady rule. You have an obligation to turn over any exculpatory evidence to the defense. So that's evidence that tends to negate the offense with which that person is charged or would mitigate any sentence for that. So if you as a prosecutor are holding on to information that you know is exculpatory to the defense and you don't turn it over, it jeopardizes the the prosecution. So even if you get a successful conviction and that person is serving a prison sentence, the truth wins out and eventually that's going to come out and it's going to overturn your win. It's going to be it's going to be fodder for overturning that conviction and you can certainly try to retry that person, but witnesses uh, memories fade, evidence gets lost. You know, it's no guarantee you're going to get get a conviction down the road. So, uh, you know, Reyes and Tower, this is like this is a career making case for them, and they jeopardize it by engaging in this cover up of cover ups. And then DA Tower does not. Uh, provide that exculpatory evidence during the trial, uh, which is a major constitutional violation. So had all this played out in a different way than it did on the streets, Frank Castle would have had an excellent set of appealable issues from his conviction, you know, from the people in the courtroom with the signs to his orange jumpsuit to to the major cover up and the ethical violations of the DA's office. Um, Frank Castle would have had an excellent appeal and it would have been fun to see Matt and Foggy tackle that. Cool. So season three, we don't see a lot of uh, practice of law. I don't know if we want to talk about this, but there is the scene where uh, Karen wants to tell Foggy a secret. So he asks for five dollars. And <laughs> Yeah, I got a chuckle out of that. I think there's this perception and I'm trying to remember back to my legal ethics course. It's It's been a couple of years um, uh, because I remember discussing this question of TV shows love to show the exchange of money. Uh, in order to uh, solidify the attorney-client relationship. But it's obviously not a prerequisite because otherwise pro bono legal work would not exist. What is necessary for an attorney-client relationship is the agreement of both parties involved, that you agree to represent this person and this client agrees to be represented by you. Uh, that's what creates the privilege. The $5 is 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 a funny moment and, and everything, but not strictly necessary, you know, from my perspective. Yeah. Made for an interesting moment. But, you know, like you said, season three is extremely entertaining. There's so much going on uh, in Matt's journey after the ev events of Defenders. And season two showed Matt completely unable to balance these two halves of his life. And he seems in season three to have just abandoned you know, being Matt Murdock, practicing attorney. And that was disappointing for me. So that would probably be the one thing I would most want to have seen in season three and that I would be most hopeful for in season four would be to see Matt balancing these two halves of his life that are so important, saving the world as Daredevil, fixing the world as Matt Murdock, because he is portrayed as being very intelligent, articulate. He has these heightened senses that let him do things other attorneys can't do. And as an attorney, like that's the time I identify the most with Matt. I, I'm not a particularly athletic and strong and tall person. And I don't think I'd look great in a daredevil suit or be flipping through the streets. But man, when he's in the courtroom, I can see myself in Matt Murdock and I can identify with with that half of his life and then be entertained by the wishful fulfillment of the other half. And so, you know, that that I was sad was missing from season three. And it's funny because I'm reading along in the, the current Chip Zdarsky's run and Matt's down and out, uh, to, to say the least. And he's uh, working in a legal adjacent role um, as a probation officer. But I'm looking forward to hopefully, knock on wood, Matt returning to some sort of legal practitioner role because he is just very effective uh, with his skill set, with his sharp legal mind and and with his boldness. I, I think many attorneys struggle with imposter syndrome when they get started and the profession is very challenging. It's personally stretching. And Matt, because of the confidence that comes from being Daredevil, you know, carries a certain weight when he comes into the courtroom. And I, for one, am desperate to see more of that. Please put Charlie Cox back in the courtroom so that I can see it again. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. That's and happen. so hopefully we will see that. But as we ended season three, the big 
plan was to make Nelson, Murdoch, and Page. Yeah, so I mean, you know, Matt's Matt's broken almost every other New York State ethical rule, so why not go for broke? Um, <laughs> so, so obviously, the new napkins scene is, uh, you know, just just a, an incredible way to sort of wrap up season three, and the the notion of Nelson Murdoch and Page is really exciting for fans. From a strictly legal ethics standpoint, uh, there there are some barriers to that. And in particular, um, New York Rule 5.4 prohibits fee sharing with non-lawyers. And as we know, Karen didn't work for free for very long. She would expect to be getting paid something. And specifically, Rule 5.4b prohibits lawyers being in a business partnership with non-lawyers if the business uh, provides any legal services. So... I don't want to break the hearts of any Save Daredevil uh, team members and fans, but Nelson Murdoch and Page, not strictly ethical uh, because you can't include the name Page in the firm's name. That's actually a separate rule, Rule 7.5b. Uh, firms can be named for their current partners, for dead partners, if there was a continuity of the firm. So you see firms today that are named after people who lived 100 years ago, but they all have to be lawyers. You can't have non-lawyers in the name. Now, a couple ways around this. Matt had a good discussion in season two, I believe, with Karen about going to law school, and she hemmed and hauled that maybe it wasn't for her, but Karen is uh, cl clearly has a very inquisitive mind. She's sharp. Um, you know, I think Karen could thrive in law school if she would buckle down and do it, and I know she has some study partners who would help her out. Uh, <laughs> if she wanted to commit three years to doing that and becoming an attorney and, uh, and then could be uh, part of the masthead of Nelson Murdoch and page. So that's one route. Uh, another route would be if foggy and Matt decided to uh, maybe hang up their hats on taking on litigation cases and things like that and decided to provide non-legal services. So if they wanted to become private investigators and compete with Jessica Jones and things like that, <laughs> They could be Nelson Murdoch and Page PIs, but could not provide legal services. So those are kind of the two main options. Now, I know Matt is no stranger to uprooting his life and moving, uh, uh, you know, to other coastal cities. I'm um, looking at you, San Francisco. So one other option that I've seen on the Internet, and I'm not an expert in this area, but I have seen... You know, most other states have these same rules prohibiting partnerships with non-lawyers, but apparently, I'm told, one place that doesn't have it is Washington, D.C., where you would be able to have a business partnership that included a non-lawyer. So they could be Nelson, Murdoch, and Page, with Nelson and Murdoch providing legal services and Page being a dedicated investigator, uh, getting to the bottom of the truth but not representing clients in court. And apparently, they could sidestep this ethical issue, but this would require our dynamic trio to uh, uproot from Hell's Kitchen and move down to the swamp of Washington, D.C., <laughs> which I don't necessarily see as possible. And, and I, I can't help but think of Matt sitting in the prison across from Wilson Fisk uh, when he makes his very poor mistake of mentioning Vanessa, but also challenges Fisk in saying, I, you know, you could go and gallivant in wherever you want across the world, wherever you rich fat cats go, but you can't do that, Wilson Fisk, because New York City is who you are. Hell's Kitchen is who you are. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think the tables could be turned on Matt a little bit. He's tried to go away, and Hell's Kitchen always calls him back. Um, yeah. I think Matt could go and practice with Foggy and with Karen down in Washington, D.C., but eventually he would be uh, longing again for the subway rides and the mean streets of uh, his home. Awesome. Any other things that you want to touch on? Any other thoughts? I do want to give credit if I can to, so there are a lot of pieces on the internet for, for anyone who's interested in the law of Matt Murdoch and Daredevil. Uh, there are a lot of folks who, who, especially folks who practice in this area, because I'm certainly limited in my insights by being a civil litigator. Uh, there are unique things about the criminal defense world that uh, maybe I don't appreciate. So maybe there are deeper flaws with the Punisher trial, for example, than even I perceived as a civil litigator. Uh, but there's lots of resources out there. And one in particular that I found very good, uh, there's a law review article by um, Lewis Michael Rosen. It came out in 2019. And it's The Lawyer as Superhero, How Marvel Comics Daredevil Depicts the American Court System and Legal Practice. And I would recommend that article to everyone. I had the chance to read it. And it is 
It is the ultimate love letter to the law of Daredevil. It's really well put together and it gives a nice overview of how the law is addressed in the comics from Frank Miller on through Charles Soule. Cool. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. This was a really fun episode. Thank you, Christine, for being here. I know it's the end of your day. And thank you to my husband for coming and chatting about my favorite superhero. It's been a lot of fun. Remember, you can follow us on social media. We are Save Daredevil in almost everywhere, Facebook, Instagram, uh, so on. We are Renew Daredevil on Twitter, and we have a website, uh, SaveDaredevil.com. So look us up. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We had a great time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Talk Daredevil, the official podcast of the Save Daredevil campaign. For more information on Save Daredevil, please visit our website at SaveDaredevil.com. Remember, Murdoch's always get back up.